tinfoil hat. Oh, what the fuck are you guys even talking about? Global controls will have to be imposed, and a world governing body will be created to enforce them. Welcome to tinfoil hat. We, we, we go deep, homeboy. It's another wonderful episode of uh, Tinfoil Hat. Uh, you know who I am. You know what I'm here to do. Uh, I'm here to rock, okay? And joining me, as always, is my good friend, XG, and the place to be. What's up? What's up, buddy? Ooh, I'm excited this month's coming. We, we're coming hard. Yeah, this episode is going to blow some minds. We got some wonderful stuff coming on. Tinfoil Hat is for the people, okay? And we're bringing the show to the people. First show up is uh, next Tuesday at the World Famous Comedy Store. We have a wonderful show called Comedy Chaos. The lineups are stacked with superstars. There's an 8 and a 10.30 show. And that show is brought to you by our good friends at Absolute Extract. If you go to abx.org, you, my friends, can get set up with some sweet weed. We're talking flour, vape pens, uh, gels, ointments. You got a bad back, huh? Boom, throw a little CBD on that, makes you feel better, okay? Now, I can't, doctors, I can't guarantee you this, but if you put CBD on your forehead, you become smarter, okay? <laughs> By 10 IQ points. Can't guarantee it, but try it anyways. Good thing. And guys, hook your ladies up. They got CBD for the JJ, hook that up. Like I'm telling you, we're working on like a CBD boner combo. I'm going to get a- absolute extract and our good friends at Blue Chew come together, get you high and hard at the same time. Ooh, that's what you want. Yeah, high and hard at the same time. That's what more the, do you want? Yeah, that's for, the, that's for the ladies and the gentlemen. And shout out to Tiger. He's always hooking me up. Every time I go there, he's got beer. Setups, yep. dude. You come to, if you come to Comedy Chaos, you say, yo, yo, lizard people everywhere. I'm going to hook you up with a vape pen. That's what I'm going to do. But you got to prove to me you went to abx.org. So go check them out. They're bringing in Comedy Chaos. Then at the end of next week, the, uh, that is the 14th. June 14th, we are live. We are live at Hyenas in Plano, Texas. That's right. It's the Alien Shot JFK Tour. XG, Eddie Bravo, myself, Reed Becker, live at Plano, Texas. We're at the Hyenas. Tickets are available to that. And then the following night, we're back in our old stomping grounds. That's right. It's the secret group in Houston. We're going to be there. Come rock out. Watch Eddie Bravo go hard in the paint. And then what are we doing? Oh, uh, then we got Skank Fest. No, then we're going to a strip bar with hot black oh, women. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay? yeah. Of course. That's the plan. <laughs> we're going hard in the plane with the fucking red bone and light-skinned ladies and I, either some deep space I always come women. back with less money. Yeah. I know I'm going to come back with less money. It's going to be like, fuck, yeah. Sam, I should have yeah. just stayed home. <laughs> Somewhere out there, there's going to be a chick having my baby. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go there. And then we're very excited the following week after that, that's June uh, 20 through the 23rd. June 20 
20 to the 23rd, we are in New York. We're in Brooklyn at Skank Fest live. Tim Fall Hat, myself, XG, and our good friend Tim Dillon from Tim Dillon's Going to Hell. He will be joining us live. I'll be doing some live stand up. XG will be doing some stand up, but we will be in Brooklyn. So come out, come out wherever you are. And then we're proud to announce July 6th. We are in Huntington Beach at the Rec Room. It's Tim Fall Hat Comedy Night. Again, Eddie Bravo, XG, myself, plus some friends will be rocking out there. I'm pretty sure this show will sell out. So grab your tickets now, Huntington Beach, Orange County. Get them now because we're going hard in the paint, dog. Go to recroomhb.com. Grab those tickets. T-shirts are available, man. You want to support the show? We got some great T-shirts coming out. We got... uh, what t-shirts do we have? We, we got the tinfoil one. We got loyal, I mean, to, the loyal foil. to the foil. Oh, and we got that new one coming up. We got a surprise for him. Yeah, we got a new one. I'm super excited. I'm not going to show you, but a brand new coming out. Uh, we got that. Go to go to tinfoilhattshirts.com. Join us. Buy a shirt. Represent. Okay. The Patreon's going good. People are calling uh, conspiracies now. The greatest worst public access show in the history of time. See us talk about. Whatever. We talk conspiracies live on Patreon, and I do a weekly uh, Q&A live on the channel as well. So go join us that. And if you love me and you love comedy, check out my specials on YouTube. Go to YouTube.com backslash Sam Tripoli or put Sam Tripoli stand-up, Sam Tripoli specials. I got two on there, Armageddon and uh, Zero Fucks. Those are available for free. Check them out. Because I'm coming to a city near you, and you got to see how hard I rock. And I rock hard. I love the nuts, the nutsack you gave me. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I love that, dude. I've been using that shit. Our good <laughs> friends at Nutsack. Look at this bag. Nutsack Ooh. bags. They are joining us, dude. I'm tired of women carrying around purses, <laughs> and we got the best we can get are, are what? Fanny packs? Huh? I'm a grown man. I go to work. I pay my bills. I don't want a fanny pack. I want something that is durable. And that's our good friends at at Nutsack. No K, just N-U-T-S-A-C. That's right. Perfect bags for everyday carries. A per- I do it all the time. My computer. Uh, my boner pills. You name it. <laughs> I keep them in this bag. They're high-quality materials and craftsmanship. American wax cannabis, American leather, and American labor. A bag for American men made in America. That's how we do it. It is uh, strong, water-resistant. Give us two weeks and we'll change your life. Guaranteed you'll love our nutsack. That's right. <laughs> nutsacks, bro. Our products come with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Comfortable bags that are the right size for you. Rugged, durable bag that beat you can beat the hell out of it. There we go. Items that, yep. No more stuffed pockets. No more sitting on your wallet. I hate that. I hate that. Okay? Or having your keys poke your thighs. Always be prepared. That's right. Better organization. Just grab a nutsack and go. So what's going to happen, dude? You guys go. Right now, Nutsack is offering our listeners $5 off the first purchase. That's money you could use on other stuff. Like weed. Okay? Like our (laughs) high and hard boner CBD. Pills I'm making, okay? To receive your $5 discount, visit Nutsack, no K, N-U-T-S-A-C.com. That's Nutsack.com, okay? Use the promo code, all capital letters, tin foil hat, one word, at checkout. So, 
I'm excited. They're our good friends. Support this. I use it all the time. I didn't think I'd use it, and I really do. Yes, I feel like I work for the Pony Express, but you know what? I get there, dude. You know what? You know you can get a black nut sack? Really? Yeah. I've always wanted a black nut <laughs> yep. sack. Black or tan. Wow. Well, that's, a, that's the business today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you love the show, <laughs> you listen to the business because they support the show, and you find out where we're going to come near your house now uh, near where you live now if not enough people show up guess what the show can't come back so it's on you to support the show because we love you so much guys we got a great show coming for you today uh this is our returning champion one of the most popular shows we've done he is author of the book drugs as a weapon against us he came and told us how basically the opium Industry built the U.S. power structure, and he's now here to talk about us. Please welcome John Potash, everybody. How are you, John? Good. Thanks for having me on, Sam and XG. Uh, we love having you yeah. on. Uh, your 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 last appearance changed the way I see everything. How I see the power structure, the CIA, the war on drugs, and uh, I'm super excited to have you on today. Uh, we, you kind of brought this up last time and I wanted to follow up, but it's basically Courtney Love, the history of Courtney Love, her involvement in possible CIA, MK Ultra, uh, program and stuff like that. And, uh, so here we are, man. John, so where do you want to start? Where would you like to start on this incredibly interesting story? Thanks. So uh, just to tell viewers that th- there's a new film out uh, called, you know, Drugs and Weapons Against Us. And the subtitle is The CIA War on Musicians and Activists. And, of course, the film is based on my book. And I came out with the film uh, a few, few years after the book. Yeah. Did you did you uh, produce the film? Were you part of that? I or I did. I produced the film. Well, I love that, man. Go. Where is that? Thanks. Where can they find that? So it's it's streaming now on Amazon Prime. You can you know get it, rent, you see it there, rent it there, and uh, it's on like about five or six other platforms. It's on Vudu, it's on Vimeo, it's on uh, with Yahoo, uh, whatever. It's on um, Google Play, it's on iTunes. It's, it's out there, man. Support it's John. Uh, he's doing great work. He's getting out the information that they don't want you to know. And when you start hearing what he talks about, you start realizing who the real bad guys are. It's not crackheads on the corner. It's not heroin addicts, okay? If you say to me, why should my taxpayer money go to help drug addicts? Well, your taxpayer money is helping to go to drug addicts because you're paying for the military servicemen who protect the poppy fields. Okay, so you're already involved in this. So instead of sitting back here and crying like a baby, why don't you learn about who's really the bad guys and who's not the bad guys? And it's not the heroin addict on the corner. They got hooked because his neighborhood got flooded. It's the lizard people in boardrooms who fucking sent our boys and girls in to curb stomp fucking Middle Easterns and steal the poppy fields. Right. So, so just going. I'm going to do an overview. I'm going to try to do a quick overview of the history that led up to Courtney Love. And so, the history is, as you mentioned, so the opium shipping families uh, in the with the British, it was the British East India Company, but in America, it was uh, families called named the Russells, um, the Cabots of Harvard that started Harvard University. The Russells started uh, Yale University. 
Um, the Lowe's that started Columbia University, the Greens that started Princeton University, um, the Delano's of uh, you know uh, FDR fame, Franklin Delano Roosevelt fame. There's these were all the the wealthiest families because they made their wealth off of opium shipping. So they start these universities, they start these uh, exclusive clubs in these universities like Skull and Blunt Bones, and in Harvard it was the Porcelain Club. And they give each graduate $250,000, or today's what stays worth $250,000 upon graduation. So these guys start with a huge amount of money to go into the great, you know, the big businesses, and they came from wealth already. And so the Rockefellers came out of these places. Uh, the Pierponts intermarried with the Russells, and so uh, John Pierpont Morgan was uh, connected, you know, intermarried and connected with the Russell family. And of course, the Rockefellers, the Russell, the uh, Pierponts, and uh, J.P. Morgan became the, some of the most powerful families in the country. You know, along with the Carnegies and Vanderbilts and all that, also graduated from these schools and these clubs. And the Dulles brothers uh, actually were the lawyers for the Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan interests, who actually bought out most of the uh, top newspapers and magazines in the 19-teens to gain the most influence in our country. So that's why media, independent media like yours are so important. So Thank the, you. So, yeah, sure. So these families and the Dulles brothers then started the CIA. And then in 1953, they combined a bunch of projects they were working on to become MKUltra, Project MKUltra. And they had a lot of Nazi scientists that were already working and experimenting with psychedelics and other drugs in the concentration camps. So they were the top researchers on drugs. Now, was and this, uh, this, this, uh, the Nazis called it Libensporn, Libensporn, and the H-A-N-E-N-E-R-B-E. It was like this occult stuff that the Nazis were working, looking for like pure white children. And they would either like kidnap them or or just basically invade Poland and all these other countries and pull these kids out and put them into these programs. And then later on, give them up to adoption to uh, uh, SS families. Have you heard anything about that? Well, I've heard about their bizarre Aryan, you know, perfect, you know, finding the perfect Aryan race kind of stuff. But they were also doing twin studies and just experimenting on Jewish twins, you know, just dissecting them, taking them apart, doing all kinds of crazy crap to them to see if they can, with twins, they can find, you know, produce the master race. But they were they were doing a lot of crazy experiments. But I just focused on their use of drugs in particular to control people. And when, so they, when they brought all their drug experimentation into MK Ultra. They, MKUltra then proceeded to uh, test several dozen different drugs when um, thousands of soldiers, in my state it was Edgewood Arsenal soldiers, thousand or two uh, Edgewood Arsenal soldiers, but in different places around the country they did this. And they uh, now the top drugs, according to their own documents, the top drugs they used were actually LSD was the biggest drug they used. But then, of course, heroin and other opiates, cocaine, you know, benzos and other drugs like that, they also used MDMA, actually, ecstasy, they used too, in its uh, early state, which was MDA. So they, they then, so you, we get a lot of this information from the U.S. Senate Church Committee's report, plus MKUltra documents themselves. And Senate Church Committee found that they used LSD, uh, they dosed tons of Americans and British and other people around the world. And they use these drugs as what they call it for unconventional warfare. 
And so this warfare was against anyone who dissented from their incredibly pro-war racist opinions. Okay, that was their agenda. It was extremely racist and extremely uh, pro-war. I mean, just like the Nazi agenda, because the Nazis were working on it. But the CIA, it was started by these folks that were incredibly racist and incredibly like uh, pro-war. Yeah, the and Nazis. The, they basically, the Nazis entered an expansion, expansion draft and were right. brought over to the United States. Like, World War II was about bringing the pharmaceutical company f- companies from Germany to the United States. And then World War World War One that was World War One. World War Two was just uh-huh. basically about getting the Nazis out of Germany, and they they went to either Russia, England, I think, in the United States. If I'm correct. yeah, yeah. Well, the Ford Ford Company Rockefellers were inter, inter had their companies interlocked with IG Farben, which was the biggest pharma, you know, chemical company in the world out of Germany. Okay, and IG Farben was Bayer aspirin, but they were the first manufacturers of commercial heroin. And a number of other different companies, Sandoz, who was the first manufacturer of LSD. And so, yeah, they were interlocked. And, yeah, they wanted to get these, this expertise over to the United States. And they did that with Operation Paperclip, which brought tons of these Nazi scientists over. And Operation Sunshine brought tons of Nazis, uh, at least 10,000 down to um, Latin America to control the cocaine-producing regions down there. So here you go. They used an MKUltra. And so – when you get to the mid '60s, 1965, you got uh, assistant uh, director of MKUltra was a guy named Robert Lashbrook. In '65, Ernest Hemingway's longtime editor A. E. Hotchner says that Lashbrook brings tons of acid, tons of agents, and tons of money over to London and tells uh, his agents to get this acid in as many musicians' hands as possible. Later in '65, uh, George Harrison and, and John Lennon are dosed by George Harrison's dentist. In 67, what? Mick, yeah, Mick Jagger gets his first hit of that acid <laughs> from an undercover FBI agent, according to London's Daily Mail. And this guy's also an agent with uh, London's MI5, which is, you know, British version of, of FBI. And so this is some of the way it was happening. And so th- then you uh, now in also in the 19, mid 1960s, you had uh, two of the top figures that were pushing LSD. It was Timothy Leary on the East Coast. And Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters on the West Coast with their acid tests. You might have heard of them. They had the Trips Festival on the West Coast around the San Francisco area. And so they had these acid tests where the Grateful Dead first played these parties. And, uh, you know, in, in, as part of these acid tests, which were supposedly small, homegrown parties, you had the uh, top psychologist in MKUltra there, under, you know, undercover. You had two of his scientists with him. And he said this under legal deposition. John Gittinger, the top psychologist from Keldra said, me and two other CI scientists traveled from Washington to San Francisco to be part of these parties undercover. And he said, and two other MKUltra agents were there too, but they just didn't uh, dress undercover. And so they were kind of like laughed out of the party. But but these and at these parties, it shows that there was also a number of uh, ex-Army guys, ex-Marines, and it, it all came to show that the best evidence supports that these were MKUltra parties they they're the ones that push these parties and sponsor them to push acid like crazy to undercut the civil rights movement and to undercut the anti-war movement okay that was blossoming in that area because that was a big hub for activists around berkeley and the san francisco area all right so so courtney love is born in san francisco her her mother was part of these acid tests she was they, they went and hung out these acid tests her father Hank Harrison was the first manager for the Grateful Dead, which was the house band 
for these acid tests. And then oh the trip- my God! Right? Yes, he he. You know, it's so funny. I live next to the Hollywood Bowl, and tonight yeah. is dead night. And I just want to get a megaphone and yell at these people, like, "Dude, today we're CIA. You're being duped by spooks. Spooks love jam bands." But so right. he was very much into the, like the occult. Her father, right? Yeah. Now he says he's blowing the whistle, and I actually believe they did blow the whistle on a few things. I think he did tell the truth on a few things, and one of the things he was uh, now he his his wife, I'm uh, not wife, his girlfriend, I should say. Actually, uh, yeah, it was they never got married. Linda Carroll was Courtney Love's mother, and she was adopted by a super wealthy family named the Reeses. The Reese's owned gold mines. They had the largest share of Bausch and Lom, you know, the contact and yeah. you know, eyewear group. They were extremely wealthy. They adopt this Linda Carroll. They proceed, according to her own memoir, they were sexually abusing her. The father was an alcoholic and was sexually abusing her throughout her childhood. So her head was all kinds of messed up. And here she is, part of these acid test parties. She's got this young, you know, young girl, Courtney Love, who's an infant. And by the age of, in different biographies, they say at two years old or three years old, she starts sending her to, to therapy, to counseling. Now, I'm a therapist for a living, and I've never seen a two- or three-year-old. That doesn't happen. You don't get two- or three-year-olds. It's ridiculous. She's sending them to therapy. And so um, she says in her memoir that she thinks that Courtney Love might have been abused in one of her child care facilities. Oh, come now, on. Now, now, all I know is Hank Harrison says in his book about Courtney Love's upbringing that she was throwing tantrums when she had to go back to her mother each time when he had her for, you know, they had partial custody of her. They each had partial custody. And so um, she, her parents convinced her to sue for full custody and take Hank Harrison's custody away completely by the age of when she's about five or six years old. He's got so much money. The Reese's had so much money. They paid Hank Harrison's lawyer to throw the case. And oh, he lost- my God. Really? By the age of five or six, he lost complete custody of her, and uh, he, never, he didn't see her again for years and went into a deep depression, he said. Now, meanwhile, so she's hanging out still at all these acid test parties with the mother and, and is all the, in all these places. But the mother proceeds to, to um, do some strange things. She then travels up with the pranksters. The merry pranksters were part of Ken Kesey's group that were thrown the acid test. They were highly infiltrated with a lot of military. They end up following Ken Kesey. Now, Ken Kesey was duped, I believe. He was first an a, a experimenter in the in the, uh, the MKUltra experiments and that were CIA-sponsored. And then his head was so messed up by the acid, he was just manipulated along the way. So he ends up going up to Port, the Eugene, Oregon area. The pranksters follow him up there. Linda Carroll follows them up there. And then she goes to New Zealand. And she, she basically is uh, tired of dealing with Courtney Love, so she kind of gives her up. She ends up, Courtney Love ends up in a juvenile delinquent facility. Oh my God. On the age of 13 or 14, she sends a letter to Hank Harrison and says, Can you get me out of here? They, my doctors have been having sex with me regularly since I was a little kid, and they've been giving me psychohypnotic oh. drugs, second all, hip, you know, uh, two and alls, all these, you know, exotic uh, psychohypnotic drugs she names in her letter. And these drugs were MK Ultra drugs used for hypnosis. Now, the other thing about her time when she's going to therapy and getting all these you know, psychohypnotic drugs and saying her counselors are having sex with her, two women in that same area, a woman named Krista Nicola and Claudia Mullen, went with their therapist, Valerie Wolf, to testify in the 1990s when um, President Clinton's uh, Secretary of Health held hearings about the CIA experiments oh in the 1960s. 
And they both testified that we were um, regularly raped and given acid and other drugs and tortured to become CIA assassins. And they, they both testified this. And this woman, the therapist, testified in, in a, this federal hearing that, that 40 other therapists called her up and said, can you tell them that we have, th- we have um, you know, patients that are experiencing the same things that your, your women, your patients are talking about? They were tortured, got drugs. The CIA, they think the CIA did this to them. They could name the names, and they did. John, they named John Gittinger. They named, you know, a number of the people involved with the CIA and cultural experiments. They were turned into, you know, uh, zombie, you know, basically with dissociative, you know, what they call multiple personality and or dissociative identity disorder patients. Okay, that's split personality, basically, you know. And so when they show, when you torture, as a counselor, I'm a, uh, expertise, my expertise is trauma, that when you um, torture and uh, sexually abuse and give drugs to a child from the ages of three to eight years old, you can split their minds and oh. cause the sexual identity disorder and lead them to do things they wouldn't know the other personality is doing, you know? And so that's, these women testified to that. They said, one of them said, I was working as a prostitute assassin for the CIA before I went to therapy and, and got away from it all. And the other one broke away before she was fully uh, doing, done her training. But um, it was, yeah, it's, in, it's incredible stories that they told in the federal hearings. But here you got Courtney Love at 14. She comes out, Hank Harrison gets her out of this juvenile delinquent facility and finds that she was drug addicted and she was prostituting herself within the following year. By 15, the mainstream biographies on Courtney Love, um, one of them was by award-winning uh, author named Melissa Rossi. She says that um, Courtney Love was basically prostituting for the uh, Asian mafia, for the Japanese mafia. She got letters of Courtney to her boyfriend admitting she was prostituting, you know, talking about it. She, um, and she, she started out for the Japanese mafia at 15, and then by within two or three years, she was working for the Taiwanese mafia as a stripper and, and, and likely prostitute. And, is, she all, is this all over the world or within the United States? No, this is, this is in Taiwan and in Japan. This is in the United States. She was prostituting in the United States first, and then she went overseas to prostitute. And then she even uh, told her, um, her husband, her first husband, James Moreland, that she was sleeping with army generals in Alaska. She was prostituting up there. And, um, and they told her that the, all these wars are good for us. And so she, he says, I, I didn't realize. I thought I married a punk feminist. It turns out I married a right-wing Phyllis Diller. And, she, <laughs> and so James Moreland said he was scared, scared for his life married to her. When, she, when, he went, when he wouldn't do something she wanted, she would, ha- she would have like you know, mafia thugs come beat him up to, to do everything she wanted him to do. Really? He said it was unbelievable. He was scared to death until he you know, divorced her and got away from her. So, this, so meanwhile, when she's uh, just turned 17 years old, she goes out to visit. Her, her husband, you know, Hank Harrison had to kick her out of her, his, her house, his house because she was leaving heroin needles all over the place. He couldn't take it in prostituting, doing all these crazy things. Oh, he, he broke a monster out of, out of a juvenile delinquent facility he found, and he was really sad about it, but there's nothing he could do. So he goes to Dublin to research a book. She's uh, just turned 17, and she visits him out there, and she brings a 1,000 hits of LSD, okay? And so she's in Dublin and with him, and he uh, decides to put her up for a bit. Meanwhile, a guy 
uh, convinced Hank Harrison that he was a deadhead and he, he loved his work, you know, because he wrote a book about the Grateful Dead after he managed him for six months. And so Hank Harrison didn't really know that much about him, but he allowed him to hang out with him. This guy, um, whose name is um, O'Leary, Stephen O'Leary, uh, ends up having sex with Courtney at 17. He's an adult guy, has sex with Courtney, and then brings her to London. And when Courtney's in London, she's got her 1,000 hits of acid, and she passes around like candy to all the musicians of Liverpool. Um, she, now, Liverpool was the up-and-coming new music place. And so she proceeds to sleep with all these different musicians, saying she lost her virginity to the drummer of the Pogues, to Adam Ant, to a flock of, you know, someone from these other flock of seagulls. And all these wow. different bands you know you're mentally broken when you're fucking somebody yeah. in a flock of seagulls. <laughs> yeah, she's just all over the place, you know, there in Liverpool. Oh, and she's man. given acid out like candy. Now, that's what exactly what Lashbrook did. You know, Robert Lashbrook, the assistant director of Ultra, did in the 1960s, as you remember. And so she's copying those same behaviors with a CIA agent guiding her along the way. Now, so Harrison said there was another uh, O'Leary with Stephen O'Leary, his older brother, who he think believes was named Kevin O'Leary. Now, I, I verified the Stephen and Kevin O'Leary uh, brothers in a uh, obituary because Hank Harrison said that Stephen O'Leary admitted when his deathbed in the two, around 2000, mid-2005, 6, 7, whatever, that he was uh, – when his deathbed, he admitted he had been working for the CIA that whole time. You know, that he was in Dublin with his brother who, who was bossing him around and was obviously part of the CIA also, um, Hank Harrison said. Now, Kevin O'Leary, um, I don't know if it's the same Kevin O'Leary in Shark Tank. I really can't get, you know, say. But there's lots of pictures of Kevin O'Leary and Courtney Love these days. And they are quite saying, why are Kevin O'Leary and Courtney Love hanging out? Who knows? But all well, I know is this recent or yeah. way back in the day? It's in the last five or ten years. In the last five or ten years, there's pictures of Courtney Love and Hank and uh, and Kevin O'Leary hanging out. There they are, yeah. So um, I don't know if it's the same Kevin O'Leary. Don't get me wrong, but uh, all I can say is I did verify in an obituary that Kevin O'Leary was um, was you know the brother of Stephen O'Leary who died in the place in in the uh, Minnesota area, and I have that in my film. You can see the obituary in my film um, that verified what Hank Harrison said about him. And so now Hank Harrison was a little, little off, you know, he's a little strange about certain things. He says that he thought that his, his daughter was dissociative when he, you know, hung out with her as a teenager, when she was a teenager, and when he met her again, when he saw her again in 1993, before, you know, Kurt Cobain died. And he says that um, Kristen Pfaff, another member of, of Courtney Love's band, thought she was dissociative. Now... From everything I've read about Courtney Love, there's a lot of evidence that she probably was dissociative, you know, meaning uh, suffer from dissociative identity disorder, which is the other name for uh, split personality disorder. So, you know, I can't be sure about that. All I can say is that Courtney Love then proceeds to after she, she's in London and you know, in Liverpool and uh, passing out uh, drugs like candy. She then goes to Portland and, and goes to the music scene there, does the same thing. And she uh, has sex and befriend, you know, becomes the girlfriend of the top punk musician in Portland. And he said he, she was practically trying to shape him the whole time. And he just had to, had to get away from her eventually. She then – She was uh, trying to what? Shape him? Shape him, like mold him, like to do whatever she wanted him to do at all, all times. Okay? She then goes – ends up in, in London again and ends up somehow in uh, getting into Joe Strummer's house, get, uh, convinces him – 
to let her live there for a bit. Joe Strummer, you know, the top punk musician, yeah. you know, uh, you know of, of The Clash. Okay, she comes back. She's in all of a sudden. She's in Los Angeles, and she gets the top punk musician there, a guy named James Moreland, to marry her. And then I told you what he said about you know being married to her, and he ran for his life from her. Eventually, they were married just one year before he was scared to death and got away from her and divorced her. Her vagina is so, like uh, got more musicians in it than the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Holy shit! Right. She's like hitting Casey so, Kasem's top one. So oh, if her vagina, if she was like, you know, like a normal woman was nice about it all, you know, I don't care who she slept with. Yeah, she's me a, too. She, she's a, a freak and a half in terms of she's right wing. She's, uh, you know, passing out drugs like crazy, trying to get everyone to do drugs. And Los Angeles, she then sleeps with a guy named Eric Erlinson, who becomes her guitarist for Hole. Okay, so Erlinson somehow ends up getting um, – control he 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 has the gets the job of managing michael jackson's hits or something he gets these crazy jobs that only a super wealthy guy can kind of get you know he's a very bizarre guy anyway so they're in a band together and they uh and she he and so she ends up like you know just having sex with him and splitting up with him and so then she's dating billy corgan she's at at a party with billy corgan and kurt cobain's uh album you know the nirvana's album Nevermind was rising like crazy through the, on the charts at that time. Now, I, I say, I talk about in Drugs as Weapons Against us how when we lost the Vietnam War, we lost the war for the poppy fields. Now, I have, you know, CIA whistleblowers talking about that, that the CIA was trafficking heroin from the Vietnam area into the United States. I've got even um, a frontline episode with Ju- Judy Woodruff. I have this in my film of her saying that, you know, interviewing all these people that were involved with the drug trade in Vietnam. But um, I had to cut some of that out for the length. But she shows a, a CIA document admitting that they were trafficking heroin from Vietnam to the United States in the 1960s as part of the Vietnam War. So that was a war for the poppy fields. We know that. Everyone I mean, they knows. were putting heroin into caskets, right? I mean, like that exactly. to me exactly. Is, I, 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 it just blows my mind that yeah. – this is not a well-known fact that this CIA, when I when I hear the you know yeah. MSNBC or CNN talking about, oh, he picked uh, the this foreign leader over our intelligence community, I'm like, well, the foreign leader didn't pack caskets of dead soldiers with heroin, didn't like green light 19 hijackers to come into the United States, didn't lie about weapons of mass destruction over and over and over again. I yes. mean, like this this whitewash of what yeah. this group has done is is like so disgusting i know and so i was i remember i was on a coast to coast am you know interview and a guy a gi called in and said yeah i i witnessed them put putting the heroin in the caskets i was over wow. there in vietnam and i witnessed it happening so yeah it's it's just confirmed by so many sources that this happened anyway so after we lost vietnam we went ci went into the afghanistan area starting in 1979 Okay, and they had so I have in my film the, the, the uh, CBS and NPR. Um, sorry, yeah, CBS radio and the NPR experts in Afghanistan. Two guys, a you know, man and woman actually, who were also writers for the Boston Globe, who say um, that it was an NPR expert. I'm sorry, it was a PBS expert. But either way, these two these two uh, reporters say that Golbadin Hektmyar, 
was one of the key point guys and his group was called the Muslim Brotherhood, but they weren't Muslim. They were, they were heroin trafficking. They had heroin laboratories and they were heroin trafficking. They were just pretending to be Muslims, you know. But anyway, they were over there from 79 onwards into the 80s and into the nine, early 90s, um, tra- you know, manufacturing and trafficking heroin in the second biggest place for poppy fields. They call it the Golden Crescent for poppy fields around Afghanistan. You know, so the Vietnam area is the Golden Triangle for poppy fields, and the Afghanistan area is called the Golden Crescent for poppy fields. I mean, if you look at uh, Uma Uma Abedin, which is uh, uh, Hillary Clinton's right-hand woman, she Uh has a lot of connections to the Muslim Brotherhood. Her uh, family is, like, just very high ups there, and... Uh, you know, they're always trying to label as a terrorist group, which I think it's just a, you know, a label to divert from what's really going on. And it sounds like they're basically the, the face of a hero, a heroin distribution or opium distribution. I mean, the guy that we put in charge of Afghanistan who used to work at, I think, uh, some big oil company out of the United States, his brother was one of the biggest opium dealers in the world he was actually in charge of that whole thing yeah no doubt and so so i have a a cia whistleblower john stockwell saying in the late 80s in an interview that he knew the knew the cia planes were over there in afghanistan getting that heroin out of there in that area and this and so come around you know early 1990s they had so much supply coming to the united states coming into europe and they had they needed to get the uh, demand to match the supply, and their old try and true method was getting musicians to promote it inadvertently. Not they didn't even know they were you know what they were doing, but inadvertently to promote it. And I argue that a psychological pro- profile was done on different musicians of who would promote it best. And Kurt Cobain had a massive stomach problem and had tried it a handful of times, according to his diary, about four or five times in his life over four years just to stop his his chronic stomach problem. Um, and, uh, so he was a good guy, you know, guy to target and that's what they had. So, so here's Courtney Love hanging out with Billy Corrigan, dating Billy Corrigan at a party. And there's Kurt Cobain. She leaves her date court, you know, Billy Corrigan goes right to Kurt Cobain and, uh, starts, you know, dating him right then. And, you know, after that and immediately gets, you know, gets knocked up with his baby he uh, does you know the right thing and marries her with a prenuptial agreement because he didn't trust her you know, completely, but he married her. All the people around Seattle say that he never used heroin regularly. It was only when he met her that, that she got him using daily and that she was this kind of tornado that came into Seattle. Everything, you know, things were really peaceful in Seattle. You know, there was some heroin, but it was, it was peaceful. People got along. She just like, caused chaos in Seattle. And people started dying very quickly around her. She, you know, she uh, was using with a number of different people that would overdose when she used with them. Now she got uh, Kurt John. Cobain. Real quick, do you think that she's doing all this on orders? Like, hey, infiltrate this, or is she have a handler? Like, you know, I've read some stuff as I prepared for this that some people thought that Courtney loves dad, and you know, 
you you seem to think that he had less role in this, which you know I have no reason not to believe you. Is that he, some people thought that he was uh, uh, Kurt Cobain's handler? Like we hear that a lot that these these assets they have, where they break these guys down. You know, these MK Ultras, they break them down into you know men are uh, assassins, they're highly trained killing machines, and then women they call the sex kittens, which is like yeah. you see a lot of them walking around in like uh, leopard skin stuff. Usually, I thought that meant chicks like the bang black guys, but <laughs> apparently that's deep. Deeper MK Ultra stuff, but that yeah. is that uh, when you see them in leopard skin, that right. uh, they have handlers. Uh, what are your thoughts on any of that? Is she doing this on on orders or this instincts? Well, first thing I'll say is that that U.S. Senate Church Committee's report on MK Ultra in there they said that one of the U.S. intelligence's tactics was to use women, sex, and drugs to manipulate uh, musicians, political musicians in particular to do you know get them what they want out of them or destroy or neutralize them okay and so that you know Courtney Love just fits that you know of course now I think Courtney Love actually was being manipulated by handlers but I think that uh Kirk Cobain um wasn't and that's why when he tried to break out break away from her he was divorcing her now their lawyer Rosemary Carroll said that he said to her, her you know please take Courtney Love out of my will um and we're getting a divorce then Courtney Love went to her and said, please you know, get me the most vicious divorce lawyer possible. And um, Tom Grant, a private detective that Courtney Love actually hired like, right before Kurt Cobain's death as, as a, a front, um, he ends up finding out that she had a lot to do with his death. And so he actually started investigating her. But he taped all of his interview, all of the people he talked with. So he taped Rosemary Carroll saying that she thinks that Courtney Love was involved in Kurt Cobain's death. She found uh, a bunch of uh, letter uh, things, uh, handwriting that she had, practice handwriting, um, where he she was practicing uh, his, you know, Kurt Cobain's handwriting. It appeared. Oh my God! Um, really? Yes. And and the suicide note had two different handwritings, according to everyone who saw it. You know, one in the the body of it, and then which just sounded like a breakup of Nirvana, you know, message, which he was. He was breaking up Nirvana. Um, you know, Dave Grohl. You know, confirmed that in an interview, and uh, Chris Novoselic actually, you know, also confirmed that. I mean, you know, they, they confirmed he was breaking up Nirvana. He was actually going to form a new band with Kristen Pfaff, who was the bass player of Hole, who he had a crush on, and Kristen Pfaff loved Kurt Cobain too, and so they were going to form a new band together. And I'm not sure who else was going to be in that band, but Kristen Pfaff was murdered uh, soon after. Whoa! Okay. Yeah, you're right. I totally yeah. remember that. And and the person that was last seen with Kristen Pfaff with Eric, was Eric Erlinson, who was uh, Courtney Love's you know um, guitar player in Hole, and uh, he was you know someone she met in Los Angeles and had sex with in Los Angeles, and he seems to be you know uh, in on all of this also. Oh, so, you you think uh, that the guy from uh, you think there's possibilities allegedly that he was some kind of like like he had something to do with. Both of these or any of these um, yeah, tragedies? I do. I think, well, it's it's obviously something to do with Kristen Pfaff's um, death. Kristen Pfaff, by all accounts, had gotten clean and sober. She went into rehab when she heard that Cobain's death. She immediately went to rehab. She was so distraught, and she got clean and sober. And um, all accounts had her as clean and sober at that point. And she was moving all of her stuff out of her Seattle apartment in a way 
from back to Minneapolis, you know, where she was from originally, where she had a band called Janitor Joe. She had gotten back together with Janitor Joe. Um, she, you know, she was going to you know, do some, some uh, stints with them before she joined um, Kurt Cobain. So um, anyway, so she's getting all her stuff. She's got all her stuff in the truck, and her, her friend, her male friend, is, is sleeping in the truck to guard it because they were in the area. Seattle was huge had a huge amount of heroin addicts and, you know, easily could have gotten ripped off. So he slept in the truck. She's in her place. And Eric, she saw Eric Erlinson go and, and go into her apartment. And he didn't know what to think of it, but he just thought, okay, well, he's just visiting her. And then um, he finds her the next morning, you know, dead. Um, oh, and my so, God. So mother, Kristen Pfaff's mother pressed real hard to investigate it as a murder and police wouldn't investigate it as a murder. The brother, you know, pressed to investigate as a murder. They wouldn't investigate as a murder. But with Cobain, you know, what what she did is uh, – so Cobain, a year before his death, he found a cure to a stomach problem. And he said basically he was getting clean and sober. Now, um, we know he was clean and sober at least a month before his death because when he had that coma in Rome – I don't know if you remember he had a coma in Rome. What happened there was he uh, – she – he was already getting away from her. And he just wanted to see his daughter, so he wanted her to come over and bring over, you know, their daughter, and you know, um, Francis. So, so love brings over the daughter to Rome, um, and he proceeds to uh, go into a coma. It turns out when they when the doctors analyzed his blood and, and his system in in Rome, they had no illegal substances in his uh, system at all, except just a little bit of uh, you know champagne. And this rohypnol, which is roofies. Okay, yes. so she, she roofied him, and she had the prescription for roofies where that came from. Okay, she got she got it in England as a prescription for sleeping, and because uh, it's illegal in, in England, but it's illegal here, of course. So she gets that in England. She puts it in his drink, obviously, and roofies him, and almost causes him to die. I mean, she it was her first attempt to kill him, I believe, because he went into a coma for for about twenty four hours. I mean, he nearly died. And so he comes out and doesn't remember anything that happened because you know what roofies do. They, they erase your memory. And he's just pissed off and he doesn't know what to do. But he's, he was getting away from her. And um, You think, he knew, that, you think it, he knew it was her that roofied him? Uh, or you just think I, I it like – I don't know positively. I don't know for sure because you know, his memory was erased. But um, you know, I heard some things. I, I just don't know for sure. But I know he was, he was trying to get – he was already divorcing her, getting away from her. And so at the time, you know, so basically she, uh, you know, at the time, around the time of his death, she calls in a fake uh, police, you know, uh, thing saying that she's, um, she's Kurt Cobain's mother and she can't find him. When she knew exactly where he was, he was calling her regularly because he wanted to be in touch with Francis, his daughter, even though he was trying to get away from her. Um, he was, you know, she did a number of things. Then she uh, pretended to overdose at the time of his uh, death to try to, you know, get it. And she got herself locked up so she couldn't be, you know, um, blamed for anything that happened. Meanwhile, she's paying this male nanny, Michael Callie DeWitt, to watch, you know, to watch the house. And that was the nanny for Francis, you know, Cobain, their daughter. And he's a heroin addict and she's giving him the heroin regularly. She's given Eric Aronson, you know, heroin regularly. She, she paid a male bodyguard for uh, Kurt Cobain, who he kept firing and she kept rehiring, who was also a heroin addict, who was always there. So there was a group of people there to uh, do the deed in the, in the end. Now, 
who really did the deed that's you know who actually shot you know uh kurt cobain is another story now a guy named eldon hoke um who they call el duce he was a musician by the stage name el duce he said he passed two polygraph exams with the top polygrapher and said that that courtney love offered me fifty thousand dollars to kill kurt cobain to blow his head off and um my god and so she so she um, ends up looking for him, uh, you know, to, to follow through on it. But he was actually on tour. So um, he says in one film for uh, the film, you know, in the movie, Kurt and Courtney, uh, Nick Broomfield's film about them, that uh, so I, I didn't get to accept that money, but I know who did. And he starts to say Alan and then he holds himself up. But then in another interview on tape, he says Alan Wrench. And Alan Wrench was the last person to be seen with Alan Hoke when he died several days after being filmed saying his name you know oh, he died one. after that this guy he died a few days later yeah oh wow. my god last person seen with him was was you know the sound wrench so now you end up also finding the fact that kurt cobain had three times the amount of heroin that would have killed a severe addict instantly in his system and you and you got um the top you know forensic pathologist in the country um saying one film this guy's named cyril wecht he's famous from the concussion movie about the um you know that will smith played um you remember the film con- the movie concussion about the nfl yeah. football yeah, yeah. concussions well he was the, he was the boss of the will smith character in that movie cyril wecht you know in real life he was the boss and so cyril wecht is uh you know is, is about 80 years old and he said he says on film that i've never seen anybody proceed to shoot up heroin and then shoot themselves, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make now, sense yeah, at all. He says in another uh, news broadcast that he believes that Kurt Cobain was murdered and was made to look like a suicide. He said, from all the facts, that's what I believe. Well, And well, so, yeah. In, so my, in not- my belief, I mean, I've, I've struggled with drugs. I think a lot of people have. And on the blessings is I was never into heroin. I'm a go fast guy, not a go slow guy. <laughs> but what I've heard about heroin addicts is what they say is that it's like going back to the womb. And it's like this warm, fuzzy feeling that I think that if just using logic, yeah, why would you blow your head off if you're back in the womb? If you're having this this feeling of this warmth over you, and I'm not condoning, dude, please don't do heroin. I think it's nope. the worst drug out there. Just please no. don't do it. But it's like it doesn't make sense that you would want to further dist- – you want to blow your head off. That seems like because you want to end some kind of mental pain when you're supposedly in this warm, like, womb-type f- feel. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and so it doesn't make any sense at all. So, so meanwhile, this guy, um, Eldon Hoke, talked to the uh, Seattle police. He talked to the Los Angeles police. He said, I, hey, this is what happened. And none of them, none of the police departments would investigate the prime suspect, Courtney Love. You know, and so Tom Grant's bringing this evidence of, of one tape. Their lawyer saying that, that uh, they were getting divorced. You know, they're, um, the lawyer is saying that Kurt Cobain, um, you know, that Kurt Cobain said, take her out of my will. You know, um, this is he brings over evidence that somebody used Kurt Cobain's uh, credit card after his death. You know, they took it out of his, his wallet and used it after his death. And he's got the transactions that they used it after his death. 
They got, you know, they, the police say they had no fingerprints on the shotgun, which they say is ridiculous. You know, Cobain's also got Valium in the system, which showed that somebody dosed his drink with Valium to get him super groggy. And then they forced, then they, you know, obviously held him down and started shooting him up with heroin. And uh, before they uh, shot him with the shotgun. When and you, so, when you yeah. find out, John, that they won't investigate this, does that yeah. at all make you think that there's a even? I mean, I know we're talking murder, which is the darkest of dark, but that there might be a more darker force at work here. Like, like, is this a? You know, a lot of things that we see when we see these these huge stars blow up, and the, you know, there's this whole MK Ultra thing behind it. Whether it's them, their handlers, or whatever pushing a particular narrative which you know the grunge scene was very much you know i mean we went from hair metal and metal which was cocaine and craziness to heroin which is back. which is grunge which was heroin uh him wanting to get sober off it yeah. is there a darker hand at work that makes yeah. you think that the, the seattle wasn't going to the seattle police weren't going to investigate it because they were basically told not to Right. Then no doubt. I mean, so Grant, Tom Grant was a former police officer. So he had all the evidence laid out. He had a lot of it on tape. He had, you know, so many documents to show him, you know, uh, a lot of what he, what was going on. He brought it all to the Los Angeles police department where he used to work. He brought it to the Seattle police and they, they ignored him. So obviously there was a much larger hand at work. And there's the fact that, um, Courtney Love proceeds to um, you know, uh, attack other people after that. She, you know, Courtney Love's uh, bass player, obviously Kristen Pfaff, she dies mysteriously after that. Um, Courtney Love then punches Kathleen Hanna in the face, the lead singer for Bikini Kill, and gets away with it without you know any any kind of prosecution. She punches loads of people in the face. She she does she attacks tons of people. They try to bring suits, you know, uh, criminal charges against her. She, the more she gets is a misdemeanor. Okay, she's a monster out of control, and she's also promoting heroin and you know other drugs, cocaine and acid like crazy. In, in her first interview with Barbara Waters, she said that her father gave her acid, acid when he, uh, she was a child because he wanted to make her into a genius, and that's what acid can do. Okay, this is for viewer of 25 million viewers were watching her interview with Barbara Waters when she says this crazy stuff. In her her a book she came out with, she says that crack made her math whiz. And um, crack cocaine can make girls math whizzes. And that's what she says in her book. She's pushing cocaine. She's just, you know, crazy yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's all, all in line with MK Ultra pushing drugs, you know, like crazy when, on young, you know, feminist, young punk you know, women that are like idolized as Courtney Love, who's actually, you know, ridiculous, who's actually some kind of, you know, operative it appears. And I, I don't know. I think she didn't even know what, everything she was doing. I think she's being handled and, you know, but I, I, that's just what, you know, my best evidence says. Now, my wife was knocking on the door for us to go to a show, I'm sorry to say. Okay. Florence and the Machine. It's fine. But, uh, You're going to see Florence and the Machine? Yeah, we are. All right. Are. All right. Well, you know, we had a, we had a nice... Yeah. I get, Let me ask I, one question. You okay, said that they, one yeah. you said that they that they push heroin, then they pushed uh, an LSD. Do you think they're pushing Zannies and Promethazine now oh, on all the course. new rappers that are dying? All the ones that want to quit, all of a sudden go to. Is it the same thing? Xanax and what else? Promethazine, the lean, that purple stuff. Uh, I heard about that stuff. I'm sorry, I don't know a lot about that stuff. But I'll say though that um, it's obvious that they were pushing ecstasy because. 
the top ecstasy dealer in in New York, a guy Michael Caruso, the Village Voice came out with the front page article how Michael Caruso was working for the FBI and you know was a former mafia ecstasy kingpin when he went undercover and became the um, personal assistant for two members of Wu Tang Clan, and he got them to to promote ecstasy, to come to ecstasy parties and all that stuff. And they didn't realize. And when that Village Voice article came out, they they fired him immediately. But no one talked about them firing him immediately. They only talked about how he's part of, you know, he's their personal assistants. Okay, so they basically uh, manipulated Wu Tang Clan to promote ecstasy without you know them being aware of what the hell was going on. And that was you know he was working, being paid by the FBI at that time. So it's obvious that yeah, they use, they manipulate rappers and other musicians to promote all, all these the time, dude. They yeah. wrap up. Final question, then we're all going to go see Florence yeah. and the Machine. Sure. <laughs> Listen, um, should we have sympathy for Courtney Love? Is there a part of us that is, I mean, like, it's very hard to say that for, about somebody who's been basically associated, allegedly, with two murders, okay? But is there a part of us that should be kind of sympathetic to that? She was thrown into a world and... You have more of a um, a simp- you seem to think he her, her dad had less to say. I more and more I think about it, especially when she says her dad gave her acid. I, I'm thinking more he's in, he's involved with the Grateful Dead. I think there might be more involvement, but that. But should we have a moment? Uh, should we have more sympathy for her and the fact she's thrown into a world of shit with no parents that really were there to guard her when she needed? She was at her most vulnerable. Well, let me just say about Hank Harrison. Hank Harrison came out with this book, Love Kills, um, about her killing Cobain. And, and he came out in his book about the fact that this guy, Stephen O'Leary, admitted working for the CIA and started bringing her around to these different places. So he came out with some important information. If he, if he was part of things, he sure blew the whistle on a lot of things. So I don't really don't know about him. But her... It's up to each individual when they want to be sympathetic or not. And here's my wife getting me for the show. Okay, we're going. We're wrapping it up. I don't want to get anybody in trouble. <laughs> All right. But I'll just you know that um, you know it's it's up to each individual about sympathy. I don't know. I just I try to stay neutral and just say put the facts out there. If you want to be sympathetic to her, you can. If you want to hate her, you should too. Uh, you can be sympathetic to her and hate her at the same time. Hate the part of her that you know contributed to the murder of Kurt Cobain and Kristen Fath. And uh, and then be sympathetic to the part of her that had the childhood she had. Sure. Well, John, thank you very much. John's wife, thank you very much for being understanding. And uh, we appreciate you, John. I can't wait till we find another topic to have you on. And we look forward to having you back. Enjoy the concert. You deserved it. And we appreciate you very much. Uh, Thanks. Thanks. Thank you, John. XG, you're you're a wonderful person. We will see you all soon. Take care. And uh, we're getting closer to the big 200. Take care, everybody.